You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is Tom McIntosh. That is not his real name. He cannot reveal his true identity. And you're going to find out why with my first question. But, Tom, welcome to the program. Good morning. Well, good morning to you. Tom, you cannot reveal your true identity. Tell the folks why. Uh, well, because I'm, I'm married to a, a, a Vietnamese-American, and her family's still in Vietnam, and they are successful people in Vietnam. And uh, Vietnam today, under its communist government, remains one of the most repressive regimes in the world. It's right down there at the bottom with uh, Saudi Arabia and North Korea and, and uh, communist China and other places like that. Um, so I'm not really concerned about my own welfare. Uh, I mean, I'm safely ensconced here in America. I'm an American citizen by birth. The problem is, you know, my wife's family uh, are successful people, and they were... Uh, uh, South Vietnamese. Uh, my father-in-law was an Arv or is an Arv veteran and fought in the South, and so they've been repressed, repressed for many many decades. And they've they've achieved success in the last 25 years since uh, Vietnam's opened up to foreign investment because they can work for foreign companies, but they can't work or do business with any uh, company. Uh, controlled by the the uh, communists, and the, the Communist Party basically has their finger into every bi domestic business inside Vietnam. Um, so they're they're on the precipice there. They could they they could they can lose their livelihood. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I recall in our talks that you mentioned a South Vietnamese gentleman from California who spoke out against the communist regime in Vietnam. And he visited Vietnam. What happened to the guy? Well, as, as I recall, he was a Vietnamese. This was a few years back, maybe three, four, five years ago. Uh, the largest Vietnamese expat community outside of Vietnam is in Southern California, uh, Garden Grove, Westminster, Orange County. And he had gone into uh, given a presentation to a Vietnamese, I think an Arvin veteran group, uh, there in uh, in Garden Grove or Westminster, and he went to visit Vietnam a few months later, and they arrested him uh, when he got off the airplane and put him in jail. Um, that was a few years ago, but there's a lot more recent uh, uh, stuff going on. You can just Google on Vietnamese American visiting and arrested in Vietnam, and you get a whole page of uh, folks who've been arrested in, in recent months. Uh, simply for speaking in, out and, and criticizing the uh, the communist government of, of Vietnam, so, it so they knew they knew they knew what he said in a speech in California. Is that right? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, they're they're Viet Cong. You know, Vietnamese communists. You know, the, we call them Viet Cong during the war in Vietnam. Well, they, they, they're still known as that today. <laughs> uh, anybody who's a communist party member in inside Vietnam is referred to as VC Victor Charlie. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, since the United States normalized relationships with Vietnam in 1995, a lot of these folks have uh, immigrated to the United States and are doing business here. And a lot of them make a little money on the side by being, by being uh, informants to the party back home. 
and so you know they'll 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 blend in with the local Vietnamese community in in California or Texas or New York or uh, Atlanta, Georgia or wherever, and uh, you have a big meeting of uh, the Vietnamese community, and you're making a speech and sitting out in the audience will be one or two or more of uh, these VC agents who have said most of them are just freelance, they're just making a little money on the side by uh, being an informant for the party. And they'll make a little money on the side, and maybe they'll get some favors when they go back home for their business, whatever. And uh, so the communists will find out about somebody who, if he's speaking out. And, uh, you know, if he goes back to visit family and do business in Vietnam, they'll, they'll round him up. They'll arrest him when they get off the airplane. So it's not uncommon. Well, that's a bit spooky. Uh, all right, Tom, tell us, <laughs> tell us what you can about your childhood. Okay, well, I, I grew up in uh, rural Iowa. Uh, my father, uh, was now retired, was a, a cattle rancher. My mom was a, uh, a nurse at the, at the public hospital nearby. And we owned a, uh, well, we had a rental farm uh, down the street, uh, down the highway. I was, we grew up on a rural highway, just kind of on an acreage there in rural Iowa. And the uh, farm was located about a, you know, a couple of miles down the highway, bicycle riding distance. <laughs> so I didn't grow up on a farm, but I commuted to a farm. <laughs> and cattle it, was a cattle, it was a cattle ranch. It wasn't a dairy farm, so there was none of this getting up at 6 a.m. to milk, milk the cows or anything like that. But there was plenty of baling hay and and working on tractors and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Dig, digging drainage ditches. <laughs> all right. Uh, 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 cattle ranch. So you were a cowboy, is that correct? Um. I guess. Uh, I'm not sure what that <laughs> definition of a cowboy is, but I, I know how to ride a horse. I know how to mend a fence. <laughs> okay. When you uh, when did you graduate from high school? And, uh, of course, you attended college after that. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, I graduated in high school in 1975, but I, okay. I enlisted in the United States uh, Naval Reserve in December of 1974 while I was a senior in high school. Um so I caught the very tail end of the Vietnam era. I, I joined up as an aviation machinist made as a mechanic. Uh, and then while I was still in school, so I was in the reserves, so I had to go in one Saturday a month and, and sit in an office and do paperwork. It was kind of, it wasn't really active reserve, but it wasn't really inactive either. It was kind of a hybrid. They called it delayed entry. So I had enlisted, I raised my hand, I signed up, and I was in. But I wasn't drawing any pay and benefits, but I wasn't really totally inactive either. I had to go check in once a month. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, as I got close to graduation from high school, I was offered a four-year ROTC scholarship with both the Navy and the Air Force. And I really wanted to uh, be a naval aviator and bang off a aircraft carriage and a jet. But uh the Navy said I had to wait till I was a senior in college and apply for pilot training. And the Air Force said, well, we'll guarantee it to you in writing now. So I asked the Navy if I could switch to the Air Force. And they said they didn't want to let me go. But they weren't going to stand in the way of career progression. So I transferred over to the Air Force. Now, you already had a pilot's license, right? Correct. I... Uh I went. To, I was able. I managed to get a job at the. Uh, uh, we were out west of Des Moines. I managed to get a job at the United Parcel Service sorting facility out east of Des Moines. Des Moines not that big of a city. I could get. I could drive in in about twenty minutes uh, to the other side of town, <laughs> and 
traffic there is not like it is in other places, big cities. And uh, so I spent, it was a four-hour shift from, like, I think it was like 5.30 to 9.30 or 10, uh, Monday through Friday. It was union scale with the Teamsters, so I was I was a Teamster member at 16, 17 years of age. Wow. Union scale. I was making union scales. <laughs> it was a part-time, <laughs> it was a formalized part-time job about 20 hours a week that I was making really good money as you know, union scale. And I used that money, I put that money in the bank and used it for flying lessons uh, the summer between my uh, sophomore and junior year in high school. Um, wow. And got my, got my pilot's license right after my 17th birthday, which was the minimum age. That's and incredible. I think okay, let's, I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's get to this because I think it's very interesting. Uh, you're from Iowa. The Air Force offered you a scholarship and pilot train. And where did they send you to school? I ended up going to school at uh, Georgia Tech in uh, aerospace engineering. All right. All right. I think a lot of people will uh, uh, enjoy that. How would you like Georgia Tech? Uh, <laughs> well, it's a common thing among tech alumni that you don't talk about graduating. You talk about getting out. <laughs> <laughs> people don't, when one alumnus talks to another alumnus, they don't say, when did you graduate? They say, when did you get out? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But you did get a degree in um, engineering, right? Yeah, in aerospace engineering. So it's, it's kind of like four, kind of like four or five years of boot camp. Uh, <laughs> to put it in to put it in perspective, there were two hundred and thirty eight freshmen in my freshman class in nineteen seventy five, and uh, I graduated in nineteen eighty five years later because I was a co op, and uh, there were twenty eight of us in my graduating class. Oh. Wow. About a ninety, close to a ninety percent attrition. Uh, <laughs> All right. The, the, did you uh, did you go straight to the Air Force after graduation from Georgia Tech? Uh, no, it was it was <laughs> kind of like when I was in high school. I was I was basically on waivers. You know, uh, not exactly inactive reserve, not exactly active either. I was commissioned, and I was and I had orders in hand to go to pilot training, but the orders were like nine months away. I graduated in June and the, I report to pilot training the following March. So I had nine months uh, where I had to fend for myself. So I ended up going to work for the carnival. <laughs> nobody really? else would hire me. Well, you know, I was 1980. You know, it, 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 the economy was not good. And, uh, uh, it, you know, there was. I tried to go to work for Lockheed, but uh, they... Uh, they hired a girl out of my, out the, I think the class before me, but I wasn't the right sex to, to get affirmative action on that. <laughs> so, uh, they, they, they said, they, they, the recruiter, they had Lockheed guy talked to you, said, well, if you were, if you were female, we'd probably find a place for you, but otherwise, you know, we don't have that many slots. <laughs> so, talk to us. So later. you were, so you were a roustabout, right? A roustabout? Yeah, you worked for the carnival. Um, for the carnival, no, no. What I, it, it it was a kind of a different sort of thing. It, it, it was uh, what we did was uh, we did company picnics and and school fairs and that kind of thing. Set up a midway, you know. So the, what we did was we were the event managers, and we wore khakis and golf shirts, and we drove the truck out to a site which might be, you know, we might drive from Atlanta all the way to Arkansas. Uh, to set up, you know, the the night before, 
so we'd leave the warehouse Friday afternoon, drive all night to get get to uh, Arkansas and set up early the next morning. And they would they would the local folks would contract with the, the band boosters or the PTA or something like that, and they would provide the labor. We provided all the equipment and the supervision, and and uh, then they got the they paid us a certain fee, and then they got all the the profits on top of that. So it was like a fundra- <laughs> it was a fundraising kind of thing. Um, so it yeah, it was a carnival, but it wasn't your traditional idea of, of being a carny. But I was driving the truck in the late seventies, early eighties, so I got proficient in, in the CB lingo at the time. Well, I, I understand, Tom, because. Uh, after I got out of school, I had to wait about four months uh, before I went to the military. Nobody would hire you, so I, I had to work as a bellboy for four months. Uh, yeah, that, you got to do, do what you got to do. Yeah, you did that too. What bellboy? No. Yeah. Oh <laughs> no, I, I didn't do that. I just I just drove the truck. I say I was <laughs> an event manager, so I drove the truck and then supervised. They said they'd have the kids from the band booster come out and help us set everything up that usually crack of dawn the next morning so we didn't get much sleep between getting to our project site and setting up (laughs) okay uh, folks we're going to our first break stay with us Uh, we'll be back to talk to Tom about his uh, pilot training in the Air Force and how he ended up flying the the wonderful amazing C-130 Hercules stay with us Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Tom McIntosh. That's not his real name, and you know why. Uh, Tom, tell us a little bit about your Air Force pilot training. How did you end up on the C-130 Hercules? Uh, well, when I was in uh, when I was at Georgia Tech, my Air Force uh, detachment commander had been a uh, C-130 test pilot. Uh, he was a World War II veteran, Korea veteran, 
and he'd flown the uh, the Hercules uh, after the war. And he was, uh, I think, I think he was in all three wars: uh, World War Two, uh, Korea, and and uh, uh, Vietnam. And uh, yeah, his, you know, going to Georgia Tech and being a attachment commander at ROTC was kind of his retirement thing. That I mean, his last assignment. He was a full colonel, and that was his last assignment. For uh, you know, before retiring, so he had like 25 years in. Um, let's see, that was uh, that, that would have been. Oh, see, he retired. And I guess 78. Uh, okay. 25. So he would have been 50. So he probably wasn't World War Two, just Korea and Vietnam, not World okay. War Two. But anyway, he'd flown the Hercules, and he pretty well convinced me that that was the that the fighter wasn't the way to go. That the Hercules was the way to go with the. Counterinsurgency operations, that sort of thing. There was more more adventure to be had uh, flying a hurt and, and getting involved in overseas than uh, at that time in the post-Vietnam era than uh, it could be had. You know, flying fighters. So if you're flying a fighter, you're flying off of ten thousand feet of concrete uh, somewhere in the states, maybe Europe. But if you were flying the Hercules, you were flying off of maybe three thousand feet of dirt out in the jungles of uh, Southeast Asia because the the war was still going on. It just wasn't so much in Vietnam. It was the wider war in Southeast Asia. So that's kind of where you know, lot, at the time. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that there. The war continued after we left there, and uh, for a long time, a lot of lives lost and everything. Uh, I know you trained on the T thirty sevens and T thirty eights, but those are jets. You didn't want the jets, so you uh, got the C one thirty Hercules. Uh, how did you like the Hercules once you got inside the cockpit? Oh, I I loved it. It's a it's a it's a great airplane. It's a go anywhere, do anything workhorse. You know, it's twenty thousand. You put twenty thousand horsepower on the wings of anything, and you can make a barn fly. Uh, and that's 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 kind of the Hercules. You know, it's basically a flying barn. A four it's kind of like a four wheel drive flatbed uh, truck you can take anywhere. Say you put twenty thousand horsepower on 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 the wing, and you can take it in and out of just about anywhere. I landed on beach sand and and dirt and turf and uh, coral. One of my interesting experiences was you know we were all over the Western Pacific and uh, Southeast Asia. And one of our missions was we ended up going to Saipan and Tinian uh, on a uh, exercise of some kind. And of course, Tinian was where uh, Dinola Gay took off. Yeah. So I managed to take off in the same runway that the Enola Gay did. So that wow. Was kind of, that was kind of an experience. <laughs> wow. Uh, you, there was a problem with the C-130s for a while. I think they had wound defects. Can you tell me about that? Right. Yeah, when I was uh, when I was at Little Rock, um, yeah, I was in formation with uh, several other aircraft, and we were late taking off uh, due to unrelated malfunction of some kind that we that we uh, uh, got fixed, and we were, or we were taxiing out to take off, and then we had a, a second malfunction came up. Uh, a, a chip detector light went off in the uh, for the gearbox, and that was a kind of a grounding thing. So we had to abort that mission, go back from put the airplane in for maintenance, and 24 hours later. Uh, they had changed the gearbox on that airplane, but it was assigned to a, a different crew for the next night, and I was on a, a different tail number. And similar situation happened. That airplane that I was no longer on, but it was uh, 
piloted by another crew, which included one of my classmates. Uh, they had an unrelated problem. They were late taking a couple hours taken off. Uh, they managed to get off the ground and uh, went out to rejoin the rest of the flight uh, uh, en route. And they so they did a formation rejoin, and in the process of rolling and pulling out, which is part of the formation rejoin maneuver, they pulled off the left wing uh, on the, uh, at the outer wing, left outer wing dry bay area, which is where Lockheed, one of my friends at Lockheed, one of my classmates from Lockheed, I've been visiting there just two weeks prior to the accident, and he had told me that he was uh, glad it was me flying the hurricane, not, not him, because they had been telling the Air Force for six months that they needed to ground the airport, the whole fleet, and x-ray the wings for the exact yeah. problem that caused that fatal crash. Um, so they ended up uh, not grounding the whole fleet. After that, they, they ended up grounding a certain number of the aircraft based on their uh, age and uh, service history, and all the other airplanes were put under severe restrictions in terms of the maneuvers they could perform. And that went on from the entire duration of, of my uh, my active duty service. You had, you had restricted airplanes, you had unrestricted airplanes. A lot of the, the newer H models were unrestricted, but the, a lot of the older E models got restricted. So that put a handicap on Air Force operations for a number of years. And I, I ended up actually going back to work for Lockheed after I left uh, active Air Force and worked on the C-130 uh, wing replacement program. So the whole thing kind of came full circle at one point. So your, your classmate from Georgia Tech went down with that plane? That's correct, yeah. So we were we were in flight, and uh, all of a sudden, I, you know, I was standing up uh, on the uh, on the intercom behind you know, these training missions. They put half a dozen pilots on them, and you're rotating in and out of the seats. And it was uh, another, uh, they had a student uh, aircraft commander in the left seat, and the, and the instructor was in the right seat. I was standing behind the uh, student aircraft commander on the intercom cord just as an observer at that point because they were rotating in and out of the seats on a five-hour mission, training mission. And all of a sudden, I see a big bright flash in the inside of the cockpit. I say, what was that? And the instructor in the right seat spoke up and said, oh, Henry just blew up. Uh, and Henry was the name of the instructor in the aircraft that uh, where the wing snapped off and of course, it was it just taken off for a five-hour mission, taken off late, two hours, uh, but it still had five hours worth of gas in the wing, so it was full of gas. And uh, that wing snapped off, and all that jet jet fuel hit the atmosphere, and and it, it just went up in a fireball, lit up the whole country, lit up the whole countryside. And then at, at that point, because my instructor happened to be the deputy mission commander, and Henry was the mission commander, and he, you know Henry had gone down with the accident airplane, and so now my instructor was the, the mission commander. So since we were the senior ranking, we were basically the flag aircraft at that point uh, in the formation. So the other airport, he's, my instructor sent the other aircraft back to base. We stayed on scene and orbited the burning hole in the ground at, at night, so it was pretty spectacular uh, for the next two hours, working the FM radio to... Uh, um, direct all of the emergency response to the site uh, hmm. fire police what have you I mean, it, fortunately it crashed in, in into a farm down there in the Arkansas countryside and there weren't any nobody on the ground got hurt but it just created a big burning smoking you know I was watching flaming de- debris fall out of the air for probably the next five or ten minutes uh, wow and uh, saying there was just a big burning hole in the ground that we orbited 
you know, formation integrity. Um, yeah. We stayed on we stayed on site until all the emergency response was firmly in place for about two hours. Then we ran low on fuel. It was our time. Our, we went back to base. Wow. So that was a it was, it was a pretty uh, uh, intense experience for a, a young twenty year old lieutenant. <laughs> I guess it was. All right, you are your first uh, uh, duty station with the Hercules was uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Uh, tell us about Clark Air Force Base and your missions from there. Uh, well, based out of I was I was not special operations. I was just plain vanilla tactical airlift. And as such, you know, we're kind of a go anywhere, do anything type of airplane. Overseas squad in Southeast Asia, there was a lot of stuff going on. And so we had a lot of just plain tactical airlift missions that we were working, uh, resupplying various outposts around the Pacific. Uh, we did missions for everybody. I remember doing one mission for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We put a bunch, we had a bunch of uh, big giant sea clams and coolers in the back of the airplane and a scientist <laughs> from NOAA riding in back and we were orbiting we flew over to these basic remote Pacific islands and they were throwing these clams out the uh, paratroop door uh, to seed the reefs there to help stimulate uh, the fishing industry in the, the uh, I guess it was the Caroline Islands uh, because these folks yeah. after, World War II, after World War II kind of became uh, uh, welfare on on sort of on a welfare dependent status and uh, their local industry had kind of atrophied so the government was trying the U.S. government was trying to stimulate the fisheries industry to get these people work instead of them just living on on the dole um, which wasn't good for their their uh, social economic situation the crime was rising and so on um, so they're trying to stimulate the fishing industry so that was one of you mission and sometimes we would carry couriers from the US embassy to the embassy in Bangkok or Kuala Lumpur or wherever and you know these guys come on board with a, a attache case handcuffed to their their wrist because it was full of you know diplomatic secrets or whatever <laughs> um, so that was that kind of stuff and then there was we'd set alert and when you if you were on the alert crew, you know, there, was, there were C-9 Nightingales at Clark, and there were MC-130 Special Ops Blackbirds, and then there were HC-130 Rescue Birds nearby at Kadena. And if any of those, if those squadrons were busy with other missions and they had a, um, a, a medevac that went and the C-9s were busy or they had a missing, uh, some kind of missing uh, uh, person situation, either civilian or military, uh, and the HC-130s of Kadena occupied elsewhere, they would alert us, and we'd go on a search and rescue mission. So I ended up on some search and rescue missions. I ended up on some medevacs, um, ended up resupplying some special ops guys out in the field because the MC-130s were busy, and the guys, you know, nothing really top secret, super classified, just fly out to a jungle airstrip and, you know, resupply a, a pallet of the... the rafts and hand grenades and 7.62-millimeter M16 ammunition uh, for the guys out in the field because they needed resupply, and the MC-130s were busy, so they would bang the crew off alert. So if you went on alert, you never knew what kind of adventure you might be off on. Might might not be anything. You might sit your whole alert time. They used to make us sit in a, a trailer on base. Uh, hmm. with a telephone there, but they eventually got pay, a pager system, Motorola pager system, you could sit alert at home. 
because this was the Philippines and the telephone system was non-existent. Um, there, well, there was some telephones, but they were few and far between. So uh, if you were on alert, you could go home with a pager, and if you got paged, you had to drive to the base and uh, get this water in a certain period of time. Uh, well, that, that is, that, that's really interesting. I, I've got, you sound like uh, you and the C-130 were jacks of all trades, that's for sure. We're going to our second break, folks. And we'll be right back. We'll get with uh, Tom and his missions into Southeast Asia uh, after the Vietnam War had ended. This is going to be very interesting. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, we're back with Tom McIntosh, um, C-130 pilot. Tom, tell us about your experiences with the C-130 uh, flying into Southeast Asia after the war. America's involvement in the war was over, but there were still things going on. Go ahead and tell the folks what you experienced. Well, like you said, uh, you know, after that day of infamy, 30 April 1975, when I... Soviet T-54 tanks crashed through the gates of the presidential palace in Saigon. The war, the American war, what the Vietnamese refer to as the American war in Vietnam ended. Uh, but the larger war in Southeast Asia went on for another 17 years after that, till 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the, the money supply for communist aggression dried up. So then all the communist aggression in Southeast Asia pretty much went away because they ran out of money and support from the Soviets. But in the meantime, the intervening time, say from 75 to 92, uh, they were engaged in communist insurrections all over the, the, uh, the whole region. So they were going on, in, uh, particularly the, the Vietnamese communists, the Hanoi communists, that invaded and occupied uh, Cambodia. So uh, we were prohibited uh, from being inside of Cambodia, uh, Laos, and Vietnam. Uh, by the uh, Case Church Amendment that came down in 73. Uh, and I can't speak to any violations of that, that that may have been going on with the special operations folks, but I know we were flying missions out to the eastern frontier in Thailand where the pre-Cambodia uh, uh, forces were operating out of refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodia border. And uh, again, we were prohibited from engaging in combat operations by Thai law which said foreign troops cannot 
engage in combat on Thai soil. So everything was a joint training exercise between us and the Royal Thai Air Force and the Royal Thai Marines, otherwise known as the King's Cobras. And they were the ones doing the, the actual fighting. So it was trained, advised, and equipped. So everything was a joint training exercise, uh, exercise Cobra Gold, that uh, was repeated. It was ongoing, uh, exercise Cobra Gold uh, was ongoing, and they renewed it every year. So it was it essentially provided cover for U.S. forces to uh, train, advise, and equip the Thai forces uh, engaged against the uh, the Hanoi communists there on the eastern frontier in Thailand. So I had a very peripheral part of that. Uh, we deployed at Utapau uh, outside of Bangkok, and I was on mission-based staff uh, for a while doing flight planning, uh, planning missions, and then I was also a drop zone control officer. So I went out with combat control team uh, on a, one mission. I called to set up a uh, alternative drop zone out near where the action was going on. Uh, but it was an it was an alternate drop zone. Just at the bat, the weather was bad at the primary uh, drop zone, or there was some other reason not to drop there. They would go to the alternate drop zone. They never dropped on my alternate drop zone, so I just kind of went out, set up a drop zone, and listened on the radio for what was going on, and eventually got told to go back to base. Um, well, so I tell folks that in my experience in the Air Force, I never saw real war, but I, what I saw was the shadow of war, and. Uh, Based on what I've saw, seen in the shadow of war, I don't think I want to see the real thing because the shadow of war was ugly enough. Uh, uh, tell my, me about it. And so th- those of you guys who served in-country in Vietnam have my utmost respect because yeah, you... I appreciate you that said. statement, Tom. I really do. Uh, <clears throat> the Cambodian communist group called the Khmer uh, Rouge or a murderous group of bastards. They massacred about two million of their own people. They threw uh, Prince Sina out of power, but yet later in after the war, our war, we got Prince Sinakuk, Sinakuk, I think it is, and the Khmer Rouge mm-hmm. formed an alliance. Can you tell us something about that? I, I've never heard about that the until I talked said to you. He was talking about mass. Right, right. That, and you know, going through the airport. Yeah, the Khmer threw out the he he didn't have to and so Sinak and his forces ended up in, in a refugee. Well, the Vietnamese uh, communists invaded uh, uh, Cambodia. I think it was in December of 78, I believe. And, and you can, uh, you can pretty well have the whole country occupied by 79. And so they pushed Tienik and his forces out of the country, and they ended up in the refugee camps I don't know on the eastern know, frontier in Thailand. And this, of course, is all before I got there, and I never really figured it out until long after the fact. I mean, I was just a young lieutenant doing my job at the time, following orders. Uh, you know, go here, go here and do this and do that. And... You know, I didn't have a need to know on a lot of the other stuff, but you know, once I came home from Southeast Asia, I started reading up. So, what was going on there? You know, I started investigating, to try and connect the dots and figure out what was going on. And what I learned uh, talking to some of the the Cambodians and Laotians who were in the states who'd come here as refugees and and others, I was able to put together the piece of the puzzle based on what I had seen uh, about what was going on there. And uh, so what happened was the uh, the 
Khmer got pushed out as well by the Vietnamese communists who occupied the whole country. So, they, so you had the, both the Khmer and the Free Cambodian forces that were in the same refugee camps and on the eastern frontier in Thailand. They formed an alliance of convenience to fight their common, en- common enemy of the Hanoi communists who were occupying their country. And then our government, of course, uh, being opposed to the, the occupation of Cambodia, and I think there were some UN resolutions to the fact demanding that the, the, the Vietnamese needed to pull out of Cambodia and end their illegal occupation. Um, so they were fighting out of these refugee camps uh, uh, back in Cambodia. Uh, so it was an alliance between uh, the Prince CMX forces and the, and the Khmer, headed up by the murderous Paul Pot, uh, who's you know the butcher of Phnom Penh. So we were yeah. basically, we were basically. I, I guess we can talk about this now. It's been what forty years. Uh, we were basically supplying the Free Cambodian forces with arms and ammunition and cash to uh, to carry out their uh, campaign against the Vietnamese communists inside Cambodia, and that was all being done on the eastern frontier. In Thailand, and like I said, my my part of that was you know, I was just a young lieutenant. I had a very peripheral part of that, um, just doing just doing my duty to uh, to help the cause. And then my, well, this sounds I did, like the per- yeah, this sounds like the perfect example of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. I mean, it's just it's sort of like the United States forming an alliance of convenience with Joseph Stalin to fight Hitler. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, when I figured out, when I heard rumors while I, while I was there, this is what was going on. Um, but, you know, I once asked, asked a question when I was on one of those missions. Uh, I asked a major who was in charge of the special ops guys in back. I said, where are you all going after we drop you off at this remote field in the jungle? I said, Lieutenant, you have a need to know. And I said, no, sir. He said, well, there's your answer. So I quit. Asking, I quit. I quit asking questions after that, and just you know, I had orders to go from point A to point B and drop off these uh, men and equipment, and uh, I just did my did my duty and didn't ask any questions. I understand. Um, you ended up. Uh, um, I hope we don't run out of time here, Tom. This is great. But you remained in the Philippines after you left the Air Force. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I think one of my additional duties, uh, besides, you know, my main duty is being a pilot, and I had additional duties as a drop zone control officer I mentioned previously, and one of my other additional duties is I was a uh, squadron community affairs officer. And we had adopted a uh, orphanage in downtown Angeles City outside the main gate of Clark Air Base, Santa Maria Children's Home, which was an orphanage that was primarily populated by Amerasian kids who were the offspring of the GIs and the local bar girls. And seeing how these were all pretty much mostly Amerasian kids, we felt sort of a moral obligation to help out there. So we basically uh, rebuilt and remodeled that, uh, that orphanage. Um, we, it was a lot of termite-infested structures, primarily a concrete structure, but it was a, a lot of wooden door frames and so on that had been ter- eaten up by termites. So we replaced a lot of their door cabinetry and door frames, and we redid their toilets. And one of the more interesting projects was digging out an old cesspool <laughs> and renovating that and replacing it because it had plugged up. Um, you haven't lived until you've renovated an old cesspool. <laughs> um, 
And then, uh, you know, one of our regular missions was going down to Mindanao and resupplying some of the special ops forces down there and uh, to the Dole pl- airfield near the Dole uh, pineapple plantation. So we'd always come back with boxes of pineapples. And uh, I, I even when that, that was a regular mission, like every 10 days. So I had a standing order with the guys going out on the mission to bring me back half a dozen boxes of pineapples. And I would, and we had to pay for them. So I would get the money out of the squadron uh, treasury to uh, pay for these pineapples. And I would take them out to the orphanage. And they would uh, feed the kids with the fruit, and then they cut the tops off, and then they could plant the tops all around the uh, the concrete wall that that was around the perimeter of the property. So after a while, they had a, 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 quite a crop of pineapples growing right inside the compound, uh, yeah. and that was how give the kids fresh fruit to eat, you know, and vitamin C and that sort of thing. Uh, so that was uh, kind of a worthwhile project. But in the process, I got to know a lot of the uh, local. Um, community leaders, the mayor of the town, a lot of the business leaders, and so on. So uh, I decided uh, you know, after my uh, minimum time was up that I would get out and, and, and go into business for myself in the Philippines, at the, more or less at the invitation of a lot of my friends, my Filipino <laughs> friends, um, who were interested in getting C-130s for the, uh, the Philippine Air Force. And I, I thought I might be able to pull some strings. Um, I had, uh, you know, I have, I come from a political family in, in Iowa, and I had connections inside the U.S. Congress to my my family. And I thought I would work some of those connections to try and get foreign military sales credits uh, for the Philippine Air Force to buy C-130s from Lockheed. So I got to know some of the folks at Lockheed. I got to know some of the the, the folks uh, in the political establishment you know, it, it, there were a lot of moving parts trying to put it all together and uh, I thought well if I could sell half a dozen T-130s to the Philippine Air Force for I think it was like 20 or 30 million a piece um, and if I got 1% one, 1 commission on that I would be set you know, my business would be fully capitalized <laughs> uh, and I could, I could go from there but they had to end up having a, a revolution in the Philippines and and uh, that just kind of all fell apart. Um, you know, I was working both sides of the fence, uh, trying to you know have more than one iron in the fire and not try to take sides because uh, I didn't want to end up. You know, if the Philippines would end up falling falling to the communists, this was not long after the fall of Saigon. I didn't want to be hanging on the skids of a helicopter <laughs> lifting off of an air uh, an apartment building in, in Manila <laughs> as Manila was evacuated evacuated falling to the communists but fortunately that never happened but you don't know going into it how it's going to come out so I that's decided true to that's true yeah you are you uh yeah we're going to run out of time tom and i want to get to your experiences in, in vietnam uh and hanoi saigon uh we're going to our last break but when we come back uh this gentleman i'm talking to has had an outstanding career in engineering and as a commercial airline pilot, but uh, he ended up taking a job in Vietnam for another airline that was run by, I believe, the Mormons. So we're going to come back with that very interesting part of this man's life. Uh, Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. I've been our, my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around town movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, around town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around town movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Tom McIntosh, a very, very interesting young man. He's had a great career uh, in the Air Force, a commercial airline pilot, businessman, environmental engineering. But flying commercially, um, he got hit by the recession. I uh, forgot which year it was, but you ended up, Tom, flying for uh, Air Mekong in Vietnam, and you ended up going to Hanoi to get your train there. Tell us a little bit about going to Hanoi and the war residue and flying out of Saigon and what Vietnam is like now. Um, yeah, you kind of touched touched on my, my whole life. Uh, been a, I've always worked two jobs if you consider being a full-time student a, a job. So kind of alternated. Being a farm boy, uh, in, environmental engineering has always been close to my heart. Conservation, I'm not a not a tree hugger by any means, more of a conservationist, <laughs> uh, you know, traditional conservationist. You know, God gave us these resources, and we've got to be responsible in our use of them. Um, but I'm not a tree hugger. we got to use the resources. We can't just set them aside and look at them. Um, so I've always alternated my career between being an engineer and being an aviator, full-time engineer and part-time aviator, full-time aviator, part-time engineer. But anyway, the obsession of 2008, 9, and 10 came around, I was back to working as a full-time aviator and a part-time engineer, and uh, you know, here in the States in 2010, there were 10,000 uh, airline pilots out on the street uh, furloughed because of the Great Recession. Vietnam had the fastest-growing economy in the world, and uh, the airline I was working for was, uh, say, was owned by the Mormons, uh, who are you know, generally very conservative uh, uh, businessmen, they understand that when times are fat, you don't highly leverage yourself. You take your surplus cash, you put it in the bank, because eventually another a recession is going to come around, 
And uh, if you're fat with cash going into recession, all, all the assets go on fire sale prices, and that's the time to invest. Buy low and sell high, you know, with the, the old advice from J.P. Morgan. So uh, ExpressJet was, uh, was my employer at the time. So they were owned by SkyWest, which is out in Utah, owned by the Mormons. And they were fat with cash going into the recession. They were looking to start up an airline in Asia, you know, where the, the market was booming. So the U.S. was deep in the Great Recession. Vietnam had the fastest growing economy in the world. So they decided it was time to expand into Southeast Asia. So they invested in a startup inside Vietnam, 30% stake in uh, Air Mekong, which is the maximum that was allowed by Vietnamese law. Under Vietnamese law, the uh, foreign investors are limited to 30% ownership in airlines. Um, so a local uh, uh, businessman, communist, B.C., <laughs> uh, was the primary owner at 70%, and, and we were the technical partner. So our owner was basically a real estate guy who was in the uh, owned some fish farms, shrimp production, and so on. Didn't know anything about running an airline. So we were the technical partner at 30%, and we provided all the expertise on how to start up and run the airline. So they, uh, they put out a call uh, here in the Atlanta area for at our base for pilots and mechanics who were willing to go over for a, uh, a minimum of a year, uh, renewable for additional years, to uh, get this thing up and running. And I... At the time, uh, my engineering business has uh, the bottom had fallen out of the Great Recession, and my my ex Filipino wife had gone, you know, run off the, at the same time. No money, no honey. Uh, <laughs> so I found myself I found, found myself suddenly single, and, and this opportunity came up. I said, "Well, she'd gotten all the you know four houses, four cars, and an airplane, and I lost it all in the, uh, you know with the engineering business in the Great Recession." So. Uh, so what this opportunity came to go to the good of Vietnam, I said, why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> sound like a great opportunity. Uh, I was 50, year old, 50 years old at the time. I felt was you know, constrained by the seniority system in, inside the American airline industry. And going over to a startup in Vietnam, I offered the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a growing enterprise and rise with the tide and kind of circumvent the seniority system I felt was holding me back here in the States. So uh, I left here and went over to uh, went over to Hanoi, staying at the uh, uh, Tung Loi apart, uh, hotel there, which is uh, like a four-star hotel, uh, right on this big uh, pond. And Hanoi is full of all these big ponds um, that uh, fish ponds are. Although I wouldn't use fish out of them since they they dump all their raw sewage right into these ponds. Uh, yeah. In fact, that if you look at the history of John McCain when he got shot down in Vietnam, he ended up parachuting into one of those ponds. Um, <laughs> they, they, the locals pulled him out of the pond, and then off he went to, uh, you know, the, the prison camp. And of course, uh, he was severely injured in his uh, ejection from his. I think it was an F four, I believe, uh, that he was shot out, shot down, and uh, because he was injured and. and fell into that pond, parachute of the pond, he, you know, he suffered severe infection. Uh, you know, oh, that's all right. The, yeah. all, the, all the pathogens in that pond. Uh, so he was in really bad shape in the prison camp for for quite a while uh, because, of the, you know, he's lucky he didn't lose uh, arms and legs from gangrene out of that whole experience. Um, what was Hanoi like? 
what's Hanoi like now? You know, the war residue, uh, how they portray the war in Hanoi, and then I know you went to south, uh, the southern part of Vietnam, to Saigon, and I think there's a big difference. So try to explain that to the folks for us. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's yeah, it's important. The important thing to understand about Vietnam is that the comparison I use uh, with Vietnam is like Central America. Central America, you've got El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and so on. They're all together. They border each other. They share common history, language, culture, and so on. But they're different, separate countries. And Indochina was the same. Uh, there, there, there was only a brief period in history where there was ever such a thing as a united Vietnam. North Vietnam uh, w- was traditionally called uh, uh, Tonkin. Uh, middle Vietnam was Amman, and South Vietnam was Cochin, China. They were really two separate countries, much like Central America. And they, they, they speak a sim- pretty much the same language, just like in Central America they speak the same language, but they're different dialects. So the Southerners are really different from the Northerners. Um, they do share a similar language, but it, you know the difference between North Vietnam and South Vietnam is like the difference between the United States and Australia in terms of language. You know, it, it's all nominally English, but you know, you put a rural Australian together with a rural a rural American, and they're they're going to barely communicate with each other. You know? <laughs> and it's it's similar in Vietnam. The Northerners and the Southerners are really quite different. Um, and so in, in North in North Vietnam, uh, they have all these these ponds, and in one of the ponds, they have the, the remnants of a B-52 that was shot down in 1972 that they preserved as a war memorial. And they also have preserved part of the Hualo prison, just a corner of it. The rest of it has been torn down and turned into high-rise office buildings and hotels and so on. But they preserved a corner of it uh, where John McCain's cell was, uh, as a war memorial. Um, and of course, you know, all, all these war memorials predict the great struggle of the, the uh, socialist uh, people of Vietnam. Uh, you know, it, it's very propagandistic, the whole thing. Um, but that, that would take more time we have right now. So how did you, uh, what was it like flying... Well, the flying was great. So, so we, we did our ground training in Hanoi, and then we uh, uh, half of us went to Saigon, the other half were based in Hanoi. But we eventually consolidated our base in uh, Saigon, and all the folks that were up in Hanoi came down to Saigon. And I had put in to be based in Saigon because being a military veteran, I wasn't totally comfortable uh, wanting to be based in Hanoi. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I actually... I, over the years, I've become friends with various South Vietnamese, and so I had a few connections in, in uh, Saigon, South Vietnam, folks I could call up and, you know, become friend, you know, local friends and so on to kind of show me around the town and so on. And I became friends with one young lady uh, over the Internet who uh, spoke English well, and uh, she was running a, a uh, weight management business, uh, selling protein shakes and so on out of the storefront in Saigon. We became friends over the internet before before I arrived, and uh, became pen pals. And then once I arrived, in, first night I was in Saigon, I asked her out for a date uh, for dinner, and we had dinner. And, uh, and she said, well, "Where are you staying?" I was staying in a hotel, hotel at company expense in downtown Saigon. And I said, "I have to look for an apartment." She said, "Oh, I can help you find an apartment." 
Uh, I said, okay. And then, so she showed me around for the next several days. Uh, we spent a lot of time together, and uh, knew it, I, I fell in love with her, and we got married. I went to Vietnam. I went to Vietnam as a single man, but I didn't come back that way. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, how do the Vietnamese people treat you in the South? So, well, both in the South and the North, you know, I, I saw nothing but you know, generally friendly overtures even in the north because uh, they, you know they want our foreign investment our hard currency uh, so they the north vietnamese were were all smiles and friendly and interested to talk to us and and you know they did they they're not holding the grudge uh, about the war because after all they ended up uh, winning in the end and that's a story for another day um and in the south of course uh, uh the native southerners most of them are gone uh, they either were killed or they ran off on the boats, you know, the boat people and so on. So the number of native southerners left in the south is a minority. There's still quite a few of them there, but they're a very small, they're actually a distinct minority. The majority of the people in the south One now minute, are Pete. northerners. Okay. Northerners who, who, it's basically an occupied, uh, the South Vietnam is essentially under occupation from the north for the last almost 50 years. Um, okay, super. David, did you uh, want to say something? Uh, just one minute. Less than one minute okay, now. Okay, one minute left. Give me your final thoughts there. Uh, we're out of time there, Tom. I hate that, but uh, very interesting interview. Give me your final thoughts on Vietnam. My final thought is that Vietnam is a, is a wonderful and beautiful, beautiful country living under a repressive regime. And one day it will be free again, and I don't think it's going to be a, a violent uh, result. I think you know the the foreign business community is work is pushing for reforms gradually, slowly. So I think gradually, eventually, Vietnam uh, will become a democracy again. But it's going to take a long time, and it's going to be okay. the foreign business community that forces it to happen. Right. My final question, very quickly: Are you are are your wife worried about the socialist movement in our country today? Uh, well, yeah, I, I think that's that's a concern, but I think it's primarily confined to academia and certain media types. I don't think the American people are really, you know, in favor of, of going towards socialism. Uh, a lot of young people are getting brainwashed in our public schools that way. But once they get out and go to work for a living, <laughs> most of white saying it. Okay, I got it. We got to go, folks. Thank you so much, Tom. Great interview. Enjoyed it. See you next week, folks. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.